This is Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer and this is the Farmer's Kitchen podcast, your chance to talk all things food with some of the best in the business. We were speaking to the soul food scholar himself, Chef Adrian Miller, who was on hand with a killer mac and cheese recipe and why he thinks soul food is so important no matter where you're from. We were also speaking to the man who's really come up with a very creative idea born out of his son's illness He's making Middle Eastern cookery easy, accessible and healthy too. Dad Ziad was on hand to explain his new company. In conversation with superstar chef born in Egypt, raised in the States and now the purveyor of 40 restaurants worldwide, Chef Michael Mina was on hand to make us very hungry indeed. We were also talking sustainability with sustainability manager of Spinney's, Sophie Corkut. What is happening in stores that we might not realise and what is hiding on the roof? And if you fancy yourself as a bit of an at-home chef, maybe you've dreamt of being on a competition on TV. Well, we spoke to Saba who did just that, going from amateur cook to capturing the attentions of Martha Stewart and winning a hefty cash prize too. So how did she do it? You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai I 103.8. Talking food on Farmer's Kitchen and joining us now is Chef Adrian Miller, who's been serving up his soul food in the US Pavilion. Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome to Dubai. How are you, Adrian? I'm good. Thank you so much. Adrian, for anyone who's not familiar with you as a James Beard Award winner, a scholar, a chef, what you describe as being a failed attorney, <laughs> can you explain? Recovering, recovering. <laughs> recovering. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a long process. You never, you never fully recover. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about your background where did you grow up and where and how did you fall in love with food in the way that you have yeah well, it was so good to be with you so um, I'm Adrian Miller the soul food scholar my tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits which I will certainly do to uh, you know during this show so I was born and raised in Denver Colorado in the United States which immediately loses me all street cred on the subject of Southern food, soul food, and barbecue. Because I didn't want to say that, of, but how, how do you get it back? How can you claw back from the place of birth to becoming a scholar of soul food? Come on. This, this is how I went back. My parents are from the American South. So my mom's from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and my dad is from Helena, Arkansas. So even in an unlikely place like Denver, Colorado, I grew up eating this type of food. So these are the food traditions I grew up with. So growing up with that food, was that unusual to your kind of peers? What, what were they eating compared to what you were having on the table? Uh, you know, so we're, we're talking about mainly a white, a predominantly white neighborhood. So a lot of unseasoned food. And I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but you're not wrong. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So most of the it was a predominantly white neighborhood uh, in the Midwest. So they were typically eating Midwestern food. So, you know, like steak and potatoes, casseroles, the, the foods Meat of the tradition. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had uh, of the because there were so few people of color, uh, most of my friends were from other ethnic groups. Uh, so my best friends growing up were Indian, like their parents were from India um, and I had a Jewish friend. So they were eating their different ethnic foods. So I kind of okay. got introduced to those. Isn't that amazing? That's very like Dubai, to be honest, in the sense that you've got people from all different backgrounds coming together. I grew up, you know, with people who were from you know this this particular part of England my kids are growing up and in their class they've got children from all over the world so when they go on play dates and parties there's you know they're exposed to foods or, or even like their lunch boxes right Which right I think I'm kind of underestimated how important that is for them and I'm hoping yes. it's going to make an impact on how they love and explore and appreciate food from other parts of the world and what it means to particular cultures as well so did you have that oh, sense no, I, of feeling other at all or was it just that everyone was a bit other yeah so uh growing up for me I definitely felt as the other because it was so predominantly white um and so yeah I felt the otherness and it wasn't really until much later in my life that I started to feel the opposite when I was in more diverse environments and I also got a chance to start traveling um, especially internationally so let's talk food. Now, as I said, your your backdrop on our video chat today looks delicious. Tell us about some of the foods that you had. I mean, come on. Mac and cheese, cold greens. What's that? That cornbread? What's what else that is, is on your corn backdrop? Bread, yes. That is cornbread. And then that the other thing is bone-in catfish. Ooh. So 
Yeah. See, I, I love I love fish and I love whole fish, but you know, getting whole fish in the United States is unusual. I'm becoming less so, but it's unusual. Most restaurants are just going to give you a fillet. So I, I gravitate to the places that are going to cook it because I just think having bone in um, fish it's just it's more flavorful in my opinion. And more generous portions, which yeah is always going to be yeah. a good thing. So what? Who was cooking, and what were they making for the young Adrian? So uh, my mother was the primary cook in our house, and uh, so what we would call soul food or Southern food today, but she was a very good cook. So she was making uh, food from other culinary genres. So she would make Mexican food. She would make Chinese and she would make Italian. Now, growing up, I realized that some of the foods, what we called them didn't really what that wasn't really what was happening in the culture. So for instance, (laughs) one of our favorite things is now, now I know it's a call the calzone, Mm -hmm. but growing up, we called them cannolis, which are the, you know, the, cream filled yeah. dessert right yeah so we totally messed it up but we were eating calzones and it's so like cuisine like and it begins with the same letter so right, right. isn't that funny how you you when you grow up you think that some things are kind of normal and that's what it is and it's only when you get older you start speaking to people you're like oh i'm so sorry what we did to your cuisine like exactly yeah chinese food and so oh, the, oh yeah but the, the meal that uh, i cooked and my twin sister and my younger brother cooked was breakfast because my mother worked nights. And so when she got home off her shift, she was too tired to make breakfast. So we would take weeks making breakfast for each other. And that's how I got my chops cooking. But look, this was not glamorous stuff. I'm talking about scrambled eggs with eggshells, you know, pancakes, French toast, you know, that kind of thing. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. It is Friday and it's competition time. I've got the last two grandstand tickets to join us at the Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championship. We're going to be there on Monday. It is the men's 30th anniversary of the men's tournament and none other than Novak Djokovic is going to be there leading the lineup. He's in Dubai now. He's actually at Expo 2020. So to go into the draw to win, hopefully an easy one for all of you tennis fans. I just want to know... Where is Novak from? His home country. You can send the flag. You can send the word. Just make sure you put your name on that message. Send it to 4001. Use the ARN Play app if you prefer. Pair of grandstand tickets. We'd love you to come along. Enjoy the tennis. If fancy buying them, it's DubaiDutyFreeTennisChampionships.com. But you're going to have to be fast. Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. We are meeting the chef this afternoon. I'm Helen Farmer in conversation with Chef Adrian Miller. Born in Denver, Colorado, but with some serious soul food credentials. He's known as a soul food scholar based on his research. Earlier, we were talking, Chef, about how you cooked breakfast for your siblings because your mum worked. But isn't that what cooking is all about? This love and appreciation and bringing together of family and friends. Oh, no, I tell people that all the time, that cooking is an act of love because someone is caring for your survival. I mean, even if the food is straight nasty, it's still a meaningful act, right? So it is. I, so you've got your chops with your cream of wheat. Love it. But you've obviously come on a huge, huge amount then. When, what was the turning point when you decided that food could be maybe not your career initially, but definitely a big part of your life? Uh, so the short answer is unemployment. And I was working in uh, the White House for President Clinton. And um, at that time in my life, I wanted to get, so I was in Washington, D.C., and I wanted to move back, return to Colorado to start my political career because I wanted to be in Congress and represent Colorado. Uh, But the job market was really slow. I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. And in the depth of my depravity, I said, you know what, I should read something. So I went to the local bookstore. I saw a book on the history of Southern food. And the author of that book wrote that the tribute to Black achievement in American cookery remains to be written. Now, when I picked the book up, it was 14 years old. And this is in 2001. Um, it was 14 years old. And so I just emailed the author out of the blue. And I asked him, I said, Mr. Edgerton, his name is John Edgerton. Um, the book's called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History. I said, you wrote this. I And, you know, do you think somebody has really filled this gap? And he said, you know what? Nobody's really done it. There's always room for another voice. So why not yours? So that one sentence is what launched me on that journey. Oh, I just got goosebumps. But isn't that amazing that, you know, some people might look at that and go, oh, that's interesting. But you took that as something of a challenge or an invitation. And you have become a scholar of soul food, which sounds quite you know, almost quite dry, you know, that there's this element of research and data, but I, I hope a lot of tasting and, and fun as well. Where did you begin with writing that award-winning book? 
So um, I, I read 3,500 oral histories of formerly enslaved people. And I, look, I just indexed everything, any reference to food. I read about 500 cookbooks, not all of them authored by African-Americans because I wanted to put African-American food traditions in some kind of culinary context. Read thousands of newspaper articles and magazine articles, talked to hundreds of people. And then because I care about my research so deeply, I decided to eat my way through the United States. So I went to 35 cities and 15 states, went to over 150 restaurants. A lot of people are surprised that I'm still alive. I guess I am too, but you know. Have you had I a health check? Out of all of those restaurants, is there one memory, one dish that stands out? Yeah, I just love the place called Bully's Soul Food in Jackson, Mississippi. Unfortunately, it has recently closed because of the pandemic. But this is the kind of place that right off the main dining room, there was a table. And periodically, somebody would come out and peel sweet potatoes and strip greens. So, you know, you just knew you were getting really really flavorful, uh, fresh food. And they had blackberry cobbler. Now, most soul food, you know, most places know about peach cobbler, but if you never had a blackberry cobbler, it is a revelation. Let me just tell you. (laughs) Now, here's a question. Me being English, we have crumble. So we would have an apple and blackberry crumble. I think cobbler has got more like cake pieces with, with a crumble, it's fruit on the bottom, and then a kind of, you'd make breadcrumbs with butter and, and sugar and some flour and sprinkle it on top. Is there a difference? Yeah. Uh, yes, there is a difference. So a cobbler here in the United States, it's changed over time. The initial cobblers would be a dish with fruit and then leftover biscuit dough or some kind of crust on top. And then as oven technology improved, there was a bottom crust added. So very similar to a pie. The difference mainly is that, or you could have a lattice crust, you know, depending on what you want. But the difference is, is that a cobbler tends to be juicier not as thick as a pie. So and I guess the pie is more of a pastry rather than a, a, a dough, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, pie is more of a pastry, yes. But sometimes people use the same. And so it's really more about the consistency of the filling. Mm-hmm. Pop- cobblers are considered juicier than, um, than pies. <laughs> so hungry. So they had a blackberry cobbler. Did you have ice cream with it? Did you cream or cream? Of course. Just checking. Okay, well, just checking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just, you're hurting me with these questions. You just seem I need, to think I don't know. I'm just I don't trying know to up. learn from the best in the business, Adrian. Come on. So this stayed with you. And then how on earth do you even begin to put tens of thousands of interviews, thousands of books, hours on the road into one book? Because this it's it was like a it's not like a personal odyssey that could could and maybe should be a tv series um or a series how do you condense or prioritize all of that information to communicate everything you've learned to people oh yeah no um first of all about having a tv series series from your lips to god's ears let's just say that but in terms of putting it all together yeah i was overwhelmed because it was way too much information because when i started the journey i reached out to food writers and they said look there's not that much information out there about African-Americans and food. So cobble together the best book that you can. But I was talking to people who were a little bit older and they didn't know about this newfangled thing called the internet. And uh, with that, I I mean, I had enough to write five books. So I thought the best way to write the story for this first book, having no idea how it would land, because this, I was a first time author. There was never a book written like this. I just created a representative soul food meal. And I wrote a chapter about every part of the meal and I explained what it is, how it gets on the soul food plate, um, and what it means for the culture. And so this was very similar to a British book, actually. That was based on a British book, Margaret Visser, uh, Much About Dinner. And so that was the template. Um, and I, I just applied that to Soul Food. That's a beautiful way of doing it. And you've, you have gone on to, ri- to write more books, including uh, Black Smoke, which was out quite recently, which includes recipes as well. So are you creating recipes or are they like an innovative twist on some things that have been around in Soul Food's history for a long time? Yeah, so um, I, I usually rely on other people's recipes. Um, so I look for the kind of the best, and then I will ask them for permission to use it. Then I also have some of my own recipes uh, taught to me by my mother. Um, and then I have some uh, historical recipes just to show people kind of the, de- the development of this cuisine. And then I do have uh, one one of the most popular recipes in my soul food book is from an ex-girlfriend. And so since... Um, you know, I, I offer a pro tip. If you are in a relationship with someone who's a good cook, you know, do what you can to stay with that person. But if you notice that things are, 
But if you notice that things are starting to get rocky, I can tell you from personal experience, it's a lot easier to get recipes before you break up. <laughs> okay. Is that not a, a sign of the relationship ending when Adrian's there just like taking photos <laughs> of, of dishes? Yeah, 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 baby. yeah, baby. How did you make that again? Yeah, yeah, just, <laughs> tell me, what was that again? I love the way you do this. Goodbye forever. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. It is Farmer's Kitchen and we're in the studio today, but next week we are going to be in Fajera and I want you to be there. We are going to be at the Address Beach Resort, brand new property in Fajera for a very special Farmer's Kitchen. And this afternoon we've got two rooms available. So you and a plus one could be a mate who needs a bit of a treat. It could be a loved one. We'd love to treat you to an overnight stay and a four-course dinner. Ingredients sourced here in the UAE, brought to you by Spinney's. So I just want to know, after checking in and all of that stuff, what is the first thing you would do when you checked into the address? For me, frozen drink, sun lounger, catch up on a book. Apart from taking photos for Poonam, I've already been put under strict instructions. That if it's not on Instagram, it didn't happen. Rosanna saying she's going to hit the spa. Jivan going for a play and the swim on the beach. Uh, Claire, hops and chips. Claire, that sounds like a happy recipe. Hillary's going to go for a dip. I can see lots of cannonballs happening around this uh, hotel pool. What is it for you? Please let me know on 4001. You can use your ARN Play app as well. You can go into as much detail as you want. I just want to know if you win this prize, you and a plus one joinings for an overnight stay. What's the first thing you would do to relax and enjoy yourself on our very special Farmer's Kitchen mini break? Let me know. Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer in conversation with Chef Adrian Miller. He's been at the US Pavilion at Expo this week, serving up his dishes of soul food. Now, Chef, outside of the US, have you done much traveling and research on soul food from other parts of the world? Yes, um, uh, yes, because I'm always curious how soul food plays out in other cultures. So most of my travel has been to Europe. Um, and so I really want to get to West Africa. I really want to get to the Caribbean and other parts of the Americas and go to these places where you have kind of concentrations of African heritage people because of slavery. Um, for instance, like Veracruz in Mexico, Cartagena in Colombia, Bahia uh, in Brazil, you have these areas where there's a lot. Of, so I want to see those connections. And I think that would more inform how soul food plays out in my own country. Speaking of your own country, you're here for Expo, the USA Pavilion. Um, did you have any expectations of what Expo was going to be like or even Dubai as a city? So I've only been to, you know, it was previously called the World Fair. I've only been to one World's Fair, and that was when I was a little kid in 1982. It was in Knoxville, Tennessee in the U.S. So I just really had no context. So I knew it was going to be a grand adventure. I just didn't know how it was going to play out. And then showing up here and seeing these majestic buildings and all the cool stuff and the slam and food. Um, so it, I just feel really honored to be a part of it. And in terms of what you're bringing to the expo table, um, what's, uh, what's the reception been like? And were you given a brief as such for, for what we want to be learning from you? Oh, yeah. So um, I, I, my cooking demonstrations are for something called Nashville hot chicken. Have you ever had that? No, tell me more. Do you know the story about Nashville hot chicken? No, tell me everything. Oh, well, if you'll, if you'll give me a moment to indulge. Uh, so there was this womanizer named Thornton Prince, and true to form, he cheated on his woman, and she was a very good cook. And so she made his very favorite thing was for fried chicken, but she made a super spicy version of it to burn his mouth out. Dude took one bite and loved it. So they ended up opening up a restaurant. Yeah, I know, it didn't work. So they ended up <laughs> opening up a restaurant, which exists to this day. It's called Prince's Hot Chicken. They stayed together uh, and started a business. Well, yeah, you know, that that's a little murky. But let's just say that this descendants of Thornton Prince are still making hot chicken to this day. And uh, it is extremely popular in the United States. How spicy are we talking? Because whenever I go to Indian restaurants here, um, they, you know, I have the kind of waiters going, you know, how spicy do you want it? And I just have to say, uh, like white girl spicy, just really not very spicy at all. <laughs> yes, it's definitely more than white girl spicy, but I think Asians and Africans and others would be like, yeah, this is not that hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but here's the cool thing. It's a very DIY, do-it-yourself approach. So you can adjust the seasoning. All you have to do is just add more chilies because yeah. it's basically about making a spicy paste. Um, and then the other dish I'm making is macaroni and cheese. And I'm, But I have a funky recipe. This is from a 
Julia Moskin of the New York Times. It's a recipe where you make the mac and cheese without cooking the pasta first. Oh, I so know. what do you do? Do you do it in, in what, what I would call a slow cooker? I, I think you guys call it a crock pot, but how do you cook it then? So you get your casserole or dish, whatever you're going to make the mac and cheese in. You uh, get cottage cheese, milk, spices, puree that, and then get uh, three-fourths pound cheddar cheese. And then in your buttered casserole dish, you're going to mix all of the uncooked. You're going to mix all of that together, cover it with foil, cook it for 30 minutes at 375 degrees. After 30 minutes, take it out, take the foil off, stir it all up, add another quarter pound of cheese and dot it with butter. Another 30 minutes. I'm telling you, Ellen, on point every time. I think you've just sorted out my what to have for dinner dilemma tonight because my kids love mac and cheese and that sounds dreamy. Um, now you've talked about cheddar there. Could you chuck in any other kind of cheeses? Anything else works? Oh yeah, yeah. Any good melting cheese will work fine. Uh, yeah, so you can just you know do it however you want to. I, I just I'm a big cheddar fan, so that's what I usually do. It's good, good English cheese. So when you're at Expo, I think you need to go to the African dining hall and eat everything there as well. Okay, I have gone there. I had my first meal there. And I didn't get everything, but man, that is such a great concept. So delicious. I think, I think that would do so well in the United States. And I I actually have met, um, I know uh, Chef Smalls who kind of designed the concept. I really hope that they transplant that in the U.S. It has to, um, because I think, I mean, me coming from the U.K., you know, I know, I'm not saying even say new, I, even though I've been to Alcabilan like now probably about eight times, I still feel like I know so little about African dining because it's so diverse. You're talking there about, you know, West Africa, East Africa can be completely different. South Africa, you know, we think about it being a cohesive continent, but it's really this amalgamation of countries. And within those countries, you've got that diversity. And I feel like yeah. still so little is known about that. Absolutely. And I, I feel like uh, West African food is poised for a moment um, because I just think it's delicious. In the United States, for the most part, we only get restaurants from Senegal, Ghana and Nigeria. So there's all, you know, so much of West Africa we don't get. But here's the interesting thing. The most popular African food right now in the United States is by far Ethiopian. And I have to tell you, I was a little surprised because I thought just the way that Ethiopian food is presented, you're eating on a spongy bread with your hands, all eggs and all that kind of stuff that, you know, like your typical white people in um, the United States would not be feeling it, but they are just grubbing. I love it. It's it's interesting to think about how these trends develop, isn't it? You know, if it's a tipping point or a travel or someone coming back and where do you live now, Adrian? So I still live in Denver. So um, after living in a couple other places, the San Francisco Bay Area and Washington, D.C., I've been in Denver for the last 21 years. And you mentioned that, you know, places sadly closing because of the pandemic. And I think it's probably too soon to have that kind of, you know, that hindsight. But do you think any of our eating, cooking patterns have been impacted because of the last couple of years? Oh, absolutely. So um, one thing that I've, uh, we've had a lot of restaurants close, but I've been really pleased to see some resiliency along our restaurant tours. And I, I'd like to see, I've, I've liked the way the dining public has rallied to them by adjusting to more takeout, buying gift cards and other things. And I hope people will do that. And I just tell people, look, if you're going out to eat right now because of staffing issues, supply chain, all kinds of stuff, just extend some grace to these restaurant tours. They're doing the best they can under very challenging circumstances so just yeah please we've got enough negativity you know you can go on twitter if you want to do that but (laughs) you're on twitter but yours isn't nothing negative there it's a it's a it's a celebration of fun so we've run out of time i have run out of questions i would have loved to chat longer but thank you so so much for your time and your insights today so nashville hot chicken if we can't you know get the recipe from you in person where can people pick up your books Follow you on Instagram, of course, and find out more about your passion for, uh, for everything soul food. Yeah, so uh, you can follow me on um, most platforms, Soul Food Scholar. I make it really easy. So at Soul Food Scholar on Instagram and Twitter, and then I have a Soul Food Scholar uh, Facebook page. I'm not sure exactly where the book is available here in this region, but if you reach out to me, I can find out. Yeah, and you can always reach out to me directly. Well, have an amazing time here in the UAE. I um, I hope it's not the last time you come to our sandy shores because 
There's a lot to explore. Thank you. Love, peace and soul food. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. We love talking food. We love people who love food and we love people who've got great ideas too. And when most people's kids get sick, you might go to the pharmacy, maybe a doctor. But what about starting a business? That takes someone special. Speaking to us now is Ziad Bushnak. He's the founder of Delectia. It's Middle Eastern frozen cooked food and in a bit of a bid to spread some health around the UAE. As they say, it's like your grandma's cooking, but the pot's a bit smaller. So from a bedside idea to the shelves of Spinney's, Ziad joins us now. How are you, sir? Hello, how are you, Helen? Very well, thank you. Um, and I'm so glad to have you on because I have spied your products on the shelves and I've wondered what the story was behind them. So tell us a little bit about where the idea came from. Well, excellent. Um, well, the idea actually started with, I'm, I'm a foodie. I like to eat well. I like to eat clean. This is, uh, eating clean as, uh, is a lifestyle and not something that you would do as a diet to achieve a short-term goal. Mm-hmm. So it started from that, um, like what, what is clean eating? Clean eating is having a wholesome food, doesn't contain preservatives or any enhancers of flavor, um, making dishes with no added sugar, uh, and pack it with vegetables and protein, you know. So the idea came from that and, and to have the convenience of it always available because this style of cooking needs a lot of time in the kitchen. And not necessarily everybody has that time. No one uh, does. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Ziad, where did you grow up and what kind of things were you eating with your family? Yeah, well, uh, I grew up here in the UAE. <laughs> my, my whole life was uh, based in the UAE, studied abroad, uh, worked abroad, and then came back and settled here. My family's been here for a long time. Um, and basically, I think every, every Middle Eastern uh, man or woman would understand this, that how their mothers would actually cook a few dishes and put them in the freezer for them to mm-hmm. take it out. And this is where the actual idea started, came up from, from, that, uh, from that time. Um, and then couple it with, with, uh, couple it with uh, clean eating. Middle Eastern food in general is healthy food, mm-hmm. but making it clean, making it, making it a clean dish, it changes people's lives, honestly. It's a, it's a life-changing uh, matter. Um, we, I had this experience. We had this experience with our son when he was younger. Um, he he had asthma, and um, you know a lot of times he couldn't breathe. And we figured out it's from the food, and it was completely fixed by fixing the food. And we just made that transition into just eat clean, and completely took it away. I think so many people want to, but they just need a bit of a helping hand, which is where you guys are coming in. Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. We are talking healthy, convenient food. And I think we all love the idea of a home-cooked meal. But sometimes the reality of going from home to supermarket or office to supermarket, home and cooking, it's just a bit much. Thankfully, some people are helping us out. One is on the line right now. Ziad Bushnak is the founder of Delectia. It's Middle Eastern frozen cooked food that you can get in spinnies. Um, we've had a couple of messages asking what's on the menu. So what are some of the dishes that you have created for our convenience, Ziad? Um, well, we have, we have the traditional Middle Eastern dishes, the Levantine dishes, the traditional dishes that uh, our grandmas and mothers, uh, we grew up with which are the, uh, the bamiya, the okra, the muluhiya, the, the rice uh, with vermicelli, the lentil soup, dawood basha. We have right now about um, 13 different uh, products that um, are on the shelves in different supermarkets in the UAE and uh, Spinney's and Waitrose, of course. Um, and uh, basically, they are the, a taste of home, a taste mm-hmm. of what the, our tradition is. And the most important is it's healthy, clean, no preservatives, no MSG, no food enhancers or taste enhancers. We're uh, completely clean food using the right oils, using olive oil and um, getting that taste with um, with that clean food. <laughs> so t- talk to us about the frozen aspect because it can be found yeah. in the chiller. What are some of the big misconceptions about frozen foods, Yad? A lot of a lot of people. There's it, it is a big misconception that a lot of people uh, think frozen is not good, or frozen will have a lot of preservatives, or uh, doesn't give that taste. But with the new technologies, the last decade has been has grown tremendously in the uh, in the frozen technology, and what we use is blast freezing, 
which takes the we cook it and it takes it down to minus 18 degrees in less than half an hour oh, wow. which keeps all the nutrients and that's how we get away without uh, adding any preservatives we don't need to add any preservatives because of the technology of blast freezing um, and this gives it a long shelf life and when you when you heat it up is as if you just uh, cooked it that's what it is and in a lot of cases really frozen food if you look at it in, in vegetables, for instance, frozen vegetables, um, are, they keep all their nutrients. Sometimes from, from farm to freezer takes about maximum a day or two. And in a lot of cases, the, uh, the fresh uh, vegetables that we see in, in markets could have been there for it took about a month or weeks from farm until we get it to our homes. So they lose a lot of nutrients on the way. And that's why frozen is a great solution um, uh, in that case. Um, Ziad, now you launched the company last year, I believe, mid-pandemic. Yes. What was it like trying to make that big life change and, and launch a company that obviously means so much to you during really trying times? Absolutely. It was, uh, it was a long time. We've been working on it um, for over four years, researching with recipes, researching with different ways of doing things. Um, packaging and uh, and freezing, <laughs> but it was uh, it was a fun ride, very challenging. But um, you have to. We believe in what we're doing, and we believe that this is something that is going to be the future. It's the future right now, if you notice, every home has a fridge and a freezer, and the fridge is usually bigger than the freezer. Mm-hmm. And we are big believers that the freezer is going to take over. <laughs> <laughs> the freezer is the future. Um, a question yeah. from uh, for Rich, who said, How, can you please spell the name? It is D-E-L. E-K-T-I-A. Um, Zia, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. It's really wonderful to hear about a kind of a problem-solving company coming out of something that's been so personal to you and your family and one that's solving problems for other people as well. Huge congratulations. All the very best for the future. Keep us posted. And yes, I'm quite tempted to try your milk here because I cannot make it for love nor money. So I'm, I'm happy for it to be your granny's <laughs> recipe that's going to help us get through Looking that. Looking forward to it. Cheers, You're yeah. love it. Take care. <laughs> You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai I 103.8. It is all about food and we love meeting people who do food well. Our next guest was born in Cairo, raised in the US. It's Chef Michael Mina. He is the man behind the incredibly chic Mina's Brasserie in the Four Seasons Hotel DIFC. Plus about 40 restaurants around the around the globe. He's an award-winning chef, has appeared on countless TV shows and has cooked for three US presidents, Clinton, Bush and Obama. And he's in town to introduce us to some new creations. Chef Mina, how are you, sir? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much. I Thank wish you, you were in the studio, um, but COVID regulations, and I know Fridays are busy for you and the team uh, down there at the Brasserie, but wonderful that you've spared half an hour for a bit of a chat. 40 restaurants across the globe. Tell us, how do you <laughs> divide your time and your attentions? Uh, well, um, I, I like to say they're kind of like children, but... Um, <laughs> That's a lot of know, kids. You usually, yeah, usually spend, um, you know, you spend as much time as needed in, in whichever restaurant needs the most attention. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of my time when I'm opening restaurants um, because... That's really when you establish the culture of the restaurant and you establish, you know, really what the DNA of the restaurant is going to be. So mm-hmm. I'll spend anywhere from three weeks to three months at a restaurant when it opens. Makes a lot of sense, you know, assembling that team, as you say, making sure that the Michael Mina culture, the DNA is in there from everything from the menu to the service. Um, and we're so lucky to have you in Dubai. It's the first restaurant you've, you've launched outside of the U.S. Why did you choose the UAE, Chef? Well, to be honest with you, you know, I was born in Cairo, I was born in Egypt, and um, I can't say that I'm extremely fluid, but at least I understand the language and, um, and grew up, you know, um, as, uh, as similar to a lot of immigrants where, you know, I'd, my mother had seven brothers and sisters that all grew up uh, within a 30 mile range of our home. And so the house was filled with that um, beautiful Middle Eastern energy. And so when I looked to do a restaurant outside of the United States, um, I really wanted my first restaurant to be in the Middle East. And I really wanted to be in Dubai. And then I got the opportunity 
Four Seasons is an amazing partner that I work with in the United States um, on numerous restaurants. And when they said that, you know, they were doing a new project at the Four Seasons and the DIFC, I was just thrilled when they offered me the opportunity. Now, you count you know, the beginning of a restaurant must be such a exciting time to think about how are you going to put this stamp on the space, what the menu is going to look like, the tastings. How how did you treat it differently to, to Dubai as you would do to an opening in you know, Bay Area or Vegas? You know, what what is the point of difference for you as a chef and restaurateur? Well, I, I mean, it, it all starts, you know, a lot of it starts honestly with understanding who is your customer mm-hmm. and um, and really um, making sure that, you know, the, the amazing thing here is you're able to, we're able to get product from all over the world here, which is really exciting because product was has not been a problem at all. You know, a lot of times as a chef, you want to go where you're going to be able to get great product. Mm-hmm. And then um, the clientele that, that obviously frequent here is so diverse that it really added, um, you know, as a chef, um, you just absolutely love when you have diversity in your dining room and you can kind of create a menu that will, you know, even though you have a, you know, like with the brasserie, it is a brasserie, but I am able to, you know, we're able to be very playful with ingredients and dishes that probably are a little bit, uh, span the globe a little bit more than the traditional brasserie. So go on, chef, make us hungry. What's on the menu? And is there anything new that you're bringing over this time? Um, every time, you know, we bring over new dishes all the time. And, and I always try to, I, I, I always like to try to balance it because I don't want to, you know, I, I truly believe that you don't just put all of, you know, what we quote unquote as chefs would call our signature dishes. You don't put them all on the menu at one time. Um, and so a lot of times what I'll do is, um, you know, rotate two or three of my classic dishes um, as I come and do menu changes, as well as then focus on, you know, seasonality. And even though seasonality here might not seem um, the same as it might seem in a, in a, you know, in a city that might have four very distinct seasons, um, there still is great seasonality to products. And so... Right now, we're just starting to get into the spring. And so, you know, the dish that, you know, like one of the classics that I've done, you know, for many, many years, for over 25 years, is uh, it's the uh, it's my caviar parfait. Oh. And so uh, uh, really uh, the, my, my favorite way to eat caviar because it's kind of just really organized for you. It's a warm, shallow, crispy shallow potato cake on the bottom with smoked salmon and um, hard-boiled eggs and uh, parsley and lemon creme fraiche and then a beautiful layer of golden ocetra caviar over the top. And I've, um, so that we're going to add that to the menu um, as well as, again, playing in, into the seasonality. So working on everything from a new Dover sole dish that will be, you know, very much inspired by the season with, um, the spring season where we have asparagus and fava beans and English peas and all of what you, you know, what you would get in the spring to doing a saffron uh, infused um, uh, pasta linguine dish with braised short rib, um, doing a Provencal style um, uh, bronzino that we'll be doing with um, uh, Provencal style with a beautiful uh, pesto orzo. Oh my goodness. You're talking to someone who had a really average chicken salad for lunch and this is not helping the rumbling tummy. So if you hear that over microphone, apologies. We're in conversation this afternoon with Chef Michael Mina. He does, of course, have Mina's Brasserie at the Four Seasons Hotel in DIFC. Um, a question here from uh, Julia saying, what did you cook for Obama? Yes, great question. As I said, you've cooked for three US presidents. I want to know, what did Obama eat? Um, you know, honestly, um, President Obama, I've actually had the pleasure of cooking for him many times. Oh. Um, when he when he was in office, um, that's I, I opened my restaurant in Washington, D.C. at the Four Seasons in Georgetown. I opened on the day of inauguration. So it was quite a quite a 
interesting opening, but the first time that I was um, blessed to cook for him, um, you know, he uh, it, he ate fairly simple. Um, there was a local, there's a local rancher there that um, was doing, that I did, had, had a beautiful porterhouse steak and that's, um, that's what I cooked, that's what we made for him. So it was, uh, you know, did a few, a few other courses as well. But what really inspired him was that local steak, and he would come back and have that quite often. Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. In conversation with one of the most successful and indeed prolific chefs on the block, Chef Michael Mina has got around 40 restaurants in the US and his first outpost outside the States is right here in Dubai. It's at the Four Seasons DIFC, Mina's Brasserie. 4001 if you've got any questions for Chef Michael Mina, born in Cairo, Egypt and raised in Ellensburg, Washington. He travels the globe, which begs the question, Chef, when you are at home and you feeling a bit lazy what do you make for a quick easy supper quick easy supper i would have to say it's usually pasta <laughs> it's usually a, a pasta dish um my wife is half italian half puerto rican so um lucky you <laughs> Lucky some days. <laughs> Love it. So, Chef, we've got lots of questions coming in for you, in fact. But I've got to ask you, and you've been working in food now for decades. Can I ask, when you started out as a young chef, a restaurateur, what did success look like? What was your big kind of professional goal? And how has it changed these years later? Well, I think, you know, I think it's really interesting. I started cooking when I was 15 years old. And um, and I fell in love with it. And, um, and, uh, so, you know, as I had mentioned, you know, we, um, immigrated from Egypt in 1969. And, um, so by the time I was 17, uh, I really knew, I mean, I was very fortunate because I knew that I wanted to be a chef. I knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life was I wanted to cook didn't know at what level, but, um, you know, it was a very interesting first conversation with, with my parents because <laughs> I'd explain to them that, you know, I, you, you, you kind of, you know, you had three choices, doctor, lawyer, engineer, right? <laughs> and chef was not one of those choices. Um, and so, um, I it, it had to do a lot of research and found a school in the United States called the Culinary Institute of America. And it was the most highly regarded you know, cooking school and, um, you know, really said, this is what I want to do. And at that point, there was never a consideration of owning 40 restaurants or anything else Mm -hmm. like that. It was just an obsession of trying to get to a point where I had a great restaurant. And, um, and I think that, unfortunately, I think our industry has changed a lot. And, and I think that, especially in the United States, um, early on in, in, and I opened my first restaurant in 1991 and, and in the early nineties for a chef to do more than one restaurant was, you know, looked, it was frowned upon because, um, uh, everyone felt that the chef had to be in the kitchen. And, you know, there is uh, truth to that, um, that, you know, yes, Maybe if you're if you're only in one restaurant, you know, maybe the restaurant will be different. But the reality is, is our profession now, there's so many great, talented people. Mm -hmm. And part of it was just to grow really talented people around you and give them the opportunity to grow. And the the way to give them the opportunity to grow was also to grow more restaurants Mm -hmm. ourselves. And then, you know, really that ability to partner with other chefs and and go out and really, um, you know, do a Japanese restaurant or do an Italian restaurant. I would never begin to say that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm the professional that can do every cuisine. I don't believe that many chefs can. I don't believe that it's really realistic. I mean, you know, to be a great Japanese chef, um, you know, that there's a science to that mm-hmm. that takes many, many decades to get to master that. And so, you know, and so, to get to this point in my career, I've always I've felt that I've been very blessed because I've been able to partner and, you know, have great chefs that work with me in different restaurants if we do different cuisines. And then what's so beautiful about that is 
everyone in the company gets to learn mm-hmm. from those chefs yeah. and from those and isn't it interesting in, in that time that, you know, you have become so successful that the perception of being a chef has changed so much? And as you say, in certain families, nationalities, cultures, you might have that traditional, you know, lawyer, doctor, accountant. But, you know, now we, we've got people like you and I think TV has played a big role in this and really putting chefs front and centre saying this is a really valid career choice and one that can you know, make you hugely successful and that's absolutely under no illusions there's not a huge amount of hard work going on behind the scenes at all hours as well chef it is time for the toughest question i'm afraid i just want to know if i was to send you to a desert island where the food is horrible but before you go you get to have your dream meal your last meal starter main dessert or any configuration or number of courses you could have a pasta course if you wanted we've had messages going um, i mean i for me would love my mum's lasagna we've had authentic shepherd's pie we've had chicken biryani coming in on the text line chef michael mina what would you choose for your last meal um honestly i would have to stick with what what i was just talking about it would be nigiri it would be the perfect sushi bar and i would be uh on the other side of the sushi bar not the side (laughs) making sushi or the nigiri and it's just because to me i think that it's you know when you have an, an an amazing japanese chef just the technique and the many, many, many years that go into it, um, it still is the food, you know, that I crave the most. And and maybe an even more difficult question, Chef Michael, if we're going to come to Mina's Brasserie over the weekend, is there one dish Mm -hmm. that you feel like you have to order? And if you haven't, then you don't have the full experience. Uh, Well, um, I would say that the tuna tartare, um, that is a, that's a classic that I've been doing for many, many years and possibly the lobster pot pie. Sold. I'll take two. <laughs> Chef Michael Mina, thank you so much for your time. I know Fridays are incredibly busy in the restaurant no. world. So really appreciate you sparing your time, your insights and hearing your stories too. Have a wonderful weekend. Fantastic to have you in Dubai and uh, would love to catch up very, very soon. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai I 103.8. Big focus on sustainability here in the UAE of late. We, of course, heard the news about charging for plastic bags. And just earlier this week, the launch of Dubai Can, those water stations across the UAE where you can fill up your bottle. So sustainability is a major focus for most companies too. And of course, Spinney's is no exception. They are working harder than ever and looking at the issues that matter most to the customers and the planet's well-being. To join us and tell us more is Sophie Corkett. She's Spinney's sustainability manager. Sophie, I mean, what a title as well, sustainability manager. I would imagine this job probably didn't exist five or ten years ago. What does it involve? Well, that's such a good question, Helen. It involved a, a terrifying amount. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless you. <laughs> when we look at food retail, we're talking about so many different touch points. We're talking about obviously the fact that we operate physical stores and mm-hmm. we have to reduce the, the footprint and the energy consumption of those stores, but it will also cover things like managing our water consumption. And then, of course, we have to think about all of the suppliers and all of the products that we buy to make sure that as a retailer, we're supporting sustainable food systems and you know, a global transition towards more sustainable ways of doing things so that we can ensure we have security and resilience and and food for the future. Um, So it does cover an awful lot of things, but that's why it's such a brilliant and fascinating job. And I think why, of course, so many people are so interested in asking so many questions of us now because um, it's so far reaching. And I feel like, you know, as as a society, we do care more than ever. Um, And, you know, in the role that you are in, I guess you can affect change quite quite easily, quite quickly with some decisions that we probably aren't even aware of behind the scenes. And I think the the stores is a really interesting one because some spinny stores have been around for decades, but some are being created, you know, in real time right now. And you've got a new concept store at Leanne. Can you tell us a little bit about it and some of the features that maybe as you walk in to do your shop, you might not realise have got sustainability front and centre? Absolutely. Um, Well, well, in fact, that's a really good point, because one of the things we've tried to do with this store is actually tell some of the stories of the things that we have been working on, you know, for for many years. So lots of our stores now are actually powered by solar, but that's something that 
isn't always obvious when you go and visit a store because mm. you don't see them on the roof. So with this store, we've tried to bring together all of those little, you know, stories and touch points about things that we've been working on to drive greater efficiency on energy use and actually telling the customers about them. Even the fact that when we procure our trolleys, we make sure that they're fully recyclable. So all new Spillies trolleys now are actually made to a much more sustainable specification. And we're just telling people on our trolleys, even little details like that, we're really trying to convey so that, you know, the questions that people have, we can start actually giving them some answers at all the touch points. But mm-hmm. aside from all of that, we are um, bringing in new concepts first in region. Um, you mentioned Dubai Can, but we were so excited to launch um, a water tap, which is something that in many parts of the world is a completely normal thing to see in a retail store. Um, but we were, you know, we were sort of one of the first in the region to do this and actually offer free, completely safe, filtered tap water. So if you've got your bottle, you can you can fill that up on us for free. Um, but also try some more exciting sparkling refills from a dedicated water bar as well. So we're trying lots of things to see see what customers like and actually try and, and signal a change towards more sustainable behaviours. So there's lots and lots in there. Um, the real focus is on on reducing waste, on refills. We've got refill stations all around the store now. Um, on local as well, we're trying to tell the story of local producers and, and really try to show people the, the real quality and, and benefits of buying from local farmers here in the UAE and tell their stories. We're bringing them right into the the communication and the produce area. And it's also our first ever store to host purely local bees. So we've got honeybees on our roof. (laughs) Speaking of Manuka honey, it's it's not Manuka, but it's completely local local honey from the bees who are going pollinating the flowers and and coming and soon they'll be productive. So we hope we'll get our first pot of honey soon from the store. Oh, that's lovely. Busy bees indeed, just as you are, Sophie. (laughs) Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. Talking sustainability on the show this afternoon and who better to pick the brains of than Sophie Corkett. She's spinning sustainability managers we talk about what's happening in store and on the shelves as well um sophie so my husband went to spinney's last weekend before we went camping and he came back with his glass jar from home with the olives in with a sticker on and i was like did you get any funny looks he's like no no they were totally cool with it how common is it for people to bring in their their own pots and containers for the deli segment Well, I know that I'm doing it, Helen. I'm so happy to hear that your family's on board as well. Um, it's getting more more popular, and we're, we're actually trying to incentivize people to do it now. So we're saying, look, if you bring your container, it saves us a container. We don't have to, to buy one, you know, for mm-hmm. you. Plus, the one that you're bringing in is, isn't disposable. So we're giving you a little bit of a reward for doing that. We're trialing that in the Leanne Sustainable Store, and we're seeing really positive uptake, actually. I mean, people are really doing it. They're bringing their containers to our deli counter, to, you know, to the butchery, to the fish counter. And if you do that, we'll give you something back. Um, you know, the, the cost of the box is kind of is back on back for you, basically. So, um, yeah, we are seeing uptake. And, and that's, that's the whole purpose of this store It's to see, you know, what will help people, what will make it easier for people to, to make the more sustainable and, and I choice. I think that's exactly, you know, we all want to do it, but we just often don't really know how to do it and need a bit of hand-holding and suggesting and, and really kind of smoothing that path to make it as easy as possible. Great question from Kieran here on the text line saying, great to see sustainability so high on the agenda at Spinney's. They've got a promotion in their Maidan shop about sustainable products from Ireland and great to see they're highlighting this as the USB. Can Sophie explain how these products are sustainable? I'm guessing Kieran's a good Irish name. Um, <laughs> now your office is of, of course above the Maidan store so I'm sure you know what he's talking about. Can you explain a bit more? Yes, I do. Well, we're really proud to offer a range of wonderful Irish brands and products, which actually are part of a, an Irish scheme to ensure that the products are actually as sustainable as possible. The production practices are working really hard to keep improving year on year on what they're doing to reduce their carbon footprint, to reduce their water consumption, to make the packaging that the products are packed in more recyclable and therefore more sustainable. And so with Ireland, we've actually worked on a on a campaign together to highlight those brands and start just teasing out those bits of information for the customer so that 
we can start, you know, defining what does the sustainability mean? What is a more sustainable brand versus mm-hmm. another? Um, and at the shelf, try and just make that a bit easier. So, so whether it's about how, how the farmers are managing the soil, not using artificial chemicals, to whether they're actually working hard to be more efficient on water consumption. We're just trying to, to help tell the story of sustainability and show people that, you know, there are, there are lots of brands working hard on this. And we know that Ireland's invested a lot in this. So, so they're a particularly good kind of national case study actually mm-hmm. lots and lots of their um, producers adhering to the origin green standards now we had big news last uh, last week or so which was about the you know pl- paying for plastic bags from july this year i believe what was your reaction to that news sophie well, we're absolutely delighted. We've been working closely with the Executive Council as one of many, many stakeholders in the UAE as, as part of that long-term engagement process. Um, and we're absolutely delighted. I mean, it's something that we've um, we've actually been, been doing in the past um, and we, we're still doing it today with, with paper bags. And once we get into the discussion about which bags are more sustainable than the other, whether it's plastic versus paper, you get into a whole kind of can of worms because, in fact, it's really what we're delighted about is that the charge is going to to kind of tax disposable single-use bags so currently it's actually been defined as a carrier bag um, and we're yet to see more on the on the specifics of exactly which bags are included in the charge but we do know that the whole ethos behind it is about is about actually disincentivizing that disposability so we're really delighted um and and we just hope that it encourages people to sort of you know bring bring a bring their bag back it's again it, we've seen it work in other countries mm-hmm. that little nudge just to remind us just to be actually you know what i don't need to pay the 25 fills or the all the 50 fills or whatever it is but i can just before I leave the house, bring the bag with me. And it has worked really well in other countries. So we're, we're very happy to, to see that come in. Well, Sophie, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Wonderful to hear about you know, local produce here in the UAE, what a great job Ireland is doing. I'm desperate to find out more about your bees on the roof. Please let me know when that first <laughs> jar of honey is available. Honey on we toast will. to celebrate. Um, and, yeah, and really fascinating, to be honest, to hear about what's happening in stores and what we can look forward to in other stores across the UAE in the future. Have a wonderful weekend ahead. You're listening to Farmer's Kitchen with Spinneys. Only on Dubai Eye 103.8. I think you'd be lying to yourself if you, as a home cook, didn't imagine yourself on a TV show maybe scooping the prize, having the recognition of some celebrity judges. So many of us have seen the numerous cooking shows online on TV where everyday cooks come together to compete. But one lady by the name of Saba has had to compete in front of the queen of cookery and lifestyle herself, Martha Stewart. She's living in Dubai speaking to us live from Boston. Saba, how are you? I am wonderful. Nice to be on the show, actually. This is so exciting. I feel like I'm back there listening to all the news and (laughs) all the uh, accents. Actually, I miss the accents the most. Oh, well, it's so nice to have you with us. And thank you. What time is it in Boston? It is uh, 7.30, actually, 7.40 at the moment. Bless you. Thank you for being with us and sharing your story because you are the person that so many of us dream of being who gets the plaudits from the celebrity judges, who's walked away with a cash prize and you were there as a contestant on Chopped. Um, Tell us a little bit. You're a busy mum of two, obviously a a pretty competent cook. What made you decide to apply for the TV show, Sabah? So uh, I actually didn't apply. They, the casting producers came to me. Uh, We were in the height of the pandemic. Um, I was about six months postpartum from my first child. And I was home uh, just using Instagram as my creative outlet, as many people do. And in order to kind of keep myself sane and fed I was just <laughs> posting a lot of recipes and a lot of great content and the casting producers came to me and uh, asked me if I was interested wow. but um, <clears throat> I had been asked to be on the show before and because I don't work in a restaurant kitchen chopped is generally for um, yeah, uh, restaurant chefs mm-hmm. and industry people. And I do work in the industry, but I work uh, more as a demonstration chef and a culinary educator. So they never thought I could 
hack it, meaning like they didn't think I had the speed um, had the and the drive <laughs> to work in that high pressure or compete in that high pressure environment. And how wrong they were. So tell us a little bit about what happens behind the scenes. Now, for anyone who's not familiar with the, with the concept of Chopped as a show, can you talk us through what it takes to compete and what happens during, during the course to crown a winner? Absolutely. So it's, um, it's a, an elimination style competition. So you start with four competitors at the top of the show. There are three rounds, appetizer, uh, entree, which is the main course and dessert. In each round, you get a mystery basket of ingredients. So you have to create One of, you know, first round, you have to create an appetizer using all of those ingredients, plus whatever they have in the pantry. Mm -hmm. And you have a limited time clock to do it. So once you get past each round, um, you know, one person is eliminated uh, until the final dessert round. And then whoever wins that wins that particular show. So I have to compete Just hearing about it. Oh, no. Yeah. I want to know what was in the baskets. Can you tell us what what were some of the weird and wonderful and perhaps unwelcome ingredients? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's always going to be a twist ingredient. So um, my first basket was not terrible. There was um, beautiful crab meat. There was some pea tendrils. There was a garden party cake, which was very random. And then something called um, bitter soda. So, you know, you have to really be creative and think outside the box and how to incorporate everything together. So I ended up making some crab cakes using uh, a little bit of the um, garden party cake frosting to help bind them together. Um, Not too sweet, though. You know, you have to balance everything. And then the bittersweet soda, which was a very odd flavor. Um, I added, I remember, some tahini to it and some honey and made it uh, a really nice a sauce to accompany the crab cakes. So very, very weird. This sounds but stressful in itself. It but you're being watched <laughs> by Martha Stewart. Like just to compound the stress factor, Sabah, what was she like and how did it look to be well, literally judged by her? She was looking over my shoulder <gasps> on several occasions and it definitely made me nervous. And she was coming around and tasting the food as we were cooking it. And actually, in that particular round, she was allowed to chop somebody mid-round <gasps> if she didn't like what she saw. So she was making up the rules as we went along and it was scary. It was really scary. So the pressure was on, it was high stakes and um, I was nervous, but it was also really exciting to be in her presence. Mm -hmm. Someone of her caliber that's accomplished so much in the culinary world. Um, It was just an honor to be there working next to her and um, feeding her and getting her uh, feedback as well. I want to know about the dessert basket because they often stick some kind of strange savory bits in there. What did what was there and what did you make? Sure. So um, I had to do two uh, dessert baskets because I had the elimination mm. um, round and then the finale. So in the um, elimination dessert basket, there was carrots, a matcha pudding uh, dessert, um, some sort of maple syrup, and a sweet and salty cream ice cream. So not a terrible basket. So I ended up making um, an, another ice cream, a cake, a, a pudding, a cream sort of mixture. Um, anyways, it looked beautiful, and uh, Martha was really blown away. <sighs> But in the finale, uh-huh. the twist was, <laughs> get so this, nervous. I had to milk a cow. What? What? <laughs> yes. What? Where? How? Yeah, it was. Uh, so we were filming this uh, not on set. It was on location up in uh, Maine. So it was a beautiful uh, property. All Everything was filmed outdoors. And uh, yeah, that was our twist. That was our one of our mystery ingredients was fresh cow's milk. But we had to go and milk it ourselves. So imagine my shock. I am not a pet person. I'm not an animal person. I don't even have a dog. (laughs) So 
I am very awkward with animals and to get down on your knees and milk a cow is a a very uh, it's an experience you won't forget. Well, it paid off because you beat out those other contestants and was crowned the winner, scooping fifty thousand dollars. So, but that's incredible. What did it feel like when they said your name? I had to pinch myself to be honest. Like I, it was out of body experience. I could, I could see everyone. I could see everything. But when I learned that I was the winner I, I I couldn't actually believe it in processing it but all cameras are on you so mm-hmm. you kind of have to play it cool too and you have to uh you know be gracious and you know um this is going to be forever the the recording so you want to make sure you say the right thing so um so although yes it was quite shocking you just kind of have to focus and and uh, say the right things. So what's next then? Because this could be maybe not a life-changing amount of money in itself, but it could be in order to be a springboard for career or an opening or a platform. Are you planning to put it into your food career or has it been earmarked for a much-needed holiday? A holiday would be fantastic, but no, <laughs> we are um, actually going to be launching a food truck this spring congratulations now one of my favorite topics i'm speaking as someone who's got big ambitions of opening a tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwich food truck just selling that specifically Sava, what is going to be your food truck well, I am um, very excited about my particular truck because it really encompasses all of the uh, my style of cooking, which takes Mediterranean uh, influences along with my South Asian heritage to create this sort of uh, global perspective. Uh, so I'm calling it uh, modern Mediterranean cuisine. And I'm actually writing a cookbook along the same lines. Oh, congratulations. Now make us hungry because the weekend is upon us here and lots of people going out for dinner tonight or cooking. What kind of dishes are you going to be serving? Have you got anything nailed down on the menu yet? Oh, I do. We've been doing a lot of research and development and a lot of recipe testing. So um, one dish that I actually perfected the recipe for is my harissa brown sugar braised beef that I'm doing with a golden pearled couscous and a really tangy cilantro sauce. It's so balanced, savory, hearty, delicious. Um, and then for people that are a little bit more health conscious and want something a, light, a little bit lighter, I'm doing a um, sesame and honey crusted halloumi a grain bowl that's going to be with brown rice and some mixed greens uh, served with a beet hummus, uh, roasted eggplant or aubergine as um, <laughs> we call it there, sweet potatoes and then a um, preserved lemon vinaigrette. Oh. And then, of course, tons of other delicious stuff as well but those are kind of the highlights Saba please please bring it to Dubai first Boston and then the UAE Um, huge thanks for your time today really really appreciate it for anyone who wants to check out your progress your recipes your demonstrations what's the best way of finding you online Saba well, uh, my Instagram is extremely active. Uh, the handle is at Saba underscore Wahid. And uh, of course, I have a website, sabawahid.com. You can always find uh, my stuff online or just Google me. <laughs> and I'm sure there'll be uh, lots of entries and resources well, there. But Instagram, I'm most active on. Wonderful to hear. Um, a real amazing success story. I think you are incredible in the face of Martha Stewart, a cow that needs to be milked and a 50 grand prize to come out triumphant. So I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful weekend ahead. All the best to you and the family in Boston. And please do not forget us here in the UAE when it comes to going global with that food truck. Farmer's Kitchen on Dubai Eye 103.8. For more on Farmer's Kitchen, you can tune in to Dubai I 103.8 every single Friday between 2 and 5 p.m.